0: This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation.
1: The Internet of Things has become a hot space for innovation over the last few years. Smart thermostats, which I have three of them here at my house in Colorado. Smart light bulbs. I haven't made that jump into it yet. Well, heck, even got internet-connected smart sprinkler systems. Where is this going and what opportunities does this open up for innovators? Hello, I'm Phil McKinney and welcome to Killer Innovations. This hour, we're going to talk to one startup that's grabbing some headlines in the Internet of Things space. In the last segment of the show, we'll brainstorm ideas on how to reach new customers for whatever that idea or innovation you're working on. But first, the CEO for Ioterra, Ben Wild, joins us to talk about IoT and how his firm is solving some of the technical challenges that face this new and emerging industry.
2: Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Phil, I appreciate you having me.
1: Oh, great, hey, uh, you and I had a chance to to meet at, uh, at the, the trade shows recently, got to see a little bit about your product, but why don't you give the audience a little bit of background. What is Ioterra? What is it you're all about?
2: Yeah, so um, at Ioterra, we're basically building the first crowdsourced wireless internet of things network. Um, So basically the way it works is we have these devices called home bases and home bases basically um, are small devices that kind of look like what wireless access points. Uh, You install it on a windowsill in your house and it creates a a coverage bubble of between, you know, one to four miles of range, depending on the terrain and kind of how high it's installed. Um, And any IoT device that has our technology inside can connect to these home bases. Uh, at that range, um, and that data gets forwarded to the internet to our servers over a Wifi connection that's built into the home base um the 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 network connection that connects to the internet of thing device that actually runs on the nine hundred megahertz unlicensed spectrum um and so with with because we have the such good range, we can cover like a city the size of San Francisco with about fifty of these home bases and create this um, complete network coverage across cities with very little infrastructure at a very low cost.
1: So why is this important right? You know you know most a lot of the IOT devices like thermostats and light bulbs and that are in the house they connect to your personal Wi-Fi connection. Why is this problem an important one for the IOT space?
2: Yeah, good question. Uh, so there's definitely you know uh, Cisco projects that you know by 2020 there's going to be 50 billion IOT devices connected connect to the internet. Um, of those definitely billions of these devices will be connected over Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. Uh, But there's going to be billions of devices that need to be connected over long range uh, to have the connectivity over entire cities. So, for instance, if you're connecting utility sensors, smart grid sensors, um, you know, tracking devices like um, uh, different sensors that have to be spread out outside the house. That today, um, the only way to connect them to the Internet is using the traditional wireless cellular network from AT&T and Verizon, for instance, uh, which were not really optimized for for IoT they were really optimized for uh, connecting smartphones to the internet, which um, can be recharged on a daily basis. Um, but a lot of Internet of Things devices, they need months or years of battery life. So there's definitely, a, we found out, uh, there's definitely a need for a new wireless technology for these kind of devices.
1: So you're saying that there's a trade-off in effect here that if I go with kind of what I would call the heavier wireless solution, you know, like a 3G or 4G, you know, look, you, you we're lucky to get a day of battery life on your smartphone. But with the IoT spaces, these small sensors being embedded in, in tens of thousands of applications need that longer battery life. What's the battery life for your solution? How long do you think that battery life lasts with your network?
2: Yeah, so um, right now we're basically building up the network uh, using a consumer tracking device called IOTA. And so the IOTA, it's a, very, it's a very small device, it's the world's smallest real-time GPS tracker right now. Uh, and that, we're, we're aiming to get about three months of battery life on that, uh, and that's a rechargeable battery. Uh, but in the future, you know, there's definitely a lot of IOT devices, a lot of sensors that can actually uh, be a bit bigger in volume and you can fit a bigger battery. Uh, so for instance, if we were to apply our technology for uh, parking sensors um, or smart grid sensors, which can fit a bigger battery, we could easily get about ten years of battery life uh, for those applications.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah ten years. Yeah, uh, that that would that, that that's actually uh, opens up a whole bunch of possibilities for uh, for the kinds of applications. So in this case, though, you're getting your network built out basically through the whole process of customers buying your solution. So as each person buys your solution and and deploys your, you know, your mini base station in their Windows cell, in effect, the consumers themselves are helping to build out that network.
2: Yeah, definitely. So uh, it's a crowdsourced network. Um, Everybody is kind of sharing their bandwidth. um, And by doing that, uh, they're able to actually use other people's bandwidth as well. So for the IOTA, um, that device is being used today for like, pet tracking, child tracking, car tracking. And when that when your dog goes out of range of your home base and uh, connects to an, uh, your neighbor's home base, for instance, uh, that's an open network and everybody benefits by sharing the bandwidth.
1: So how much bandwidth are we talking about? Is this something consumers should be worried about from the standpoint of I'm um, plugging this device in and yeah. you know, you've know, you got your, your dog tagged with, uh, with an IOTA tag, little GPS tracker, and all of a sudden it runs down in front of my house. And you use my bandwidth, is that a big amount of bandwidth, little amount of bandwidth, something consumers should be thinking about?
2: Yeah, so like right now, uh, we take less than about 10 kilobits per second of bandwidth. And which you know- is you, like, uh, Which is like
1: a rounding error.
2: Exactly, uh, so uh, you will not even notice any difference in your Wi-Fi speed.
1: Right, right. And what, what are the applications? Uh, you talked about pet tracking and child tracking. Are those the two most popular applications for, uh, you know, for your solution today?
2: Yeah, uh, we did a Kickstarter campaign last year, and we found out that 60% of our Kickstarter backers uh, purchased our devices for pet tracking and 20% for child tracking. And we had a few customers purchase it for uh, bicycle tracking um, and a few other applications.
1: So, um, in this case, what? Parents take the little tag, drop it in the little kid's backpack so they're off to school, they can make sure they, they know where they're at, that type of thing? Or yeah, so we... Laces?
2: Yeah, that's definitely two approaches that we've looked at. Um, you know, so we we do have uh, both an iOS and an Android app uh, where the parent can actually look at the app and find the location of the tracker. One very useful feature that we've implemented is actually uh, geofencing, so you can actually draw a boundary around the child's school or around your house and get an alert when your child uh, gets to school and when he comes home as well.
1: So in this case, are you shipping this today? Right, you're a couple of months into actually shipping product post your uh, your Kickstarter campaign.
2: Yeah, we started uh, slowly rolling out uh, a couple months ago. Uh, we haven't shipped all of our Kickstarter units out, but we will be shipping everything out in the next month or so.
1: And so, why Kickstarter? You know, there's kind of this you know discussion around you know the pros and cons of Kickstarters. There's been a lot of companies who've tried Kickstarter and then take the money and then end up going belly up before they actually ship anything. Why, why, did you go, why did you and your team decide to go Kickstarter for this idea?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think even I sometimes question like, you know, was it a good decision? But I think um, in retrospect, I, I do believe it was a good decision. Um, I think one thing to, to remember is that with us, um, when we did our Kickstarter campaign, we, we raised about $280,000. Uh, we had about 1,600 backers. And um, the development cycle for a hardware product uh, and the cost involved is way more than the money you raise from Kickstarter. So we got lucky that we were actually able to raise about a million dollars before we did the Kickstarter campaign. And we actually had to use a lot of that money for the development. So if I was a startup company that's building a hardware product that has no funding, um, I would say it's almost impossible to uh, actually develop a hardware product with just the money that you get from Kickstarter, the Kickstarter backers,
1: yeah. Well, Kevin, having spent ten years of my life at Hewlett Packard, yeah. trying to build, a, you know, needing to build forty million laptops a year to ship. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you, when when you have to, you know, just to get it in context, right? at HP is one hundred twenty billion in revenue. It was fifty-two billion in supply chain, you know, just wow. the commodities, so hard drives, memory, CPUs, et cetera and people kind of underestimate the complexity and how hard it really is to uh to do that who who were the funders on the original million dollars that that you
2: raised uh, we had one firm called zenshin capital in menlo park okay um yeah they were the main backers initially
1: oh interesting um, and so you raised yeah. the million dollars so you, then you really then use kickstarter as almost a market validation step and, yeah. in order to make sure that you could before you actually Cut the check to say go build and go manufacture that you actually got some validation in it
2: yeah definitely i think it's, it's two things one is market validation and also i think that the second thing is that um we the by having kickstarter backers it puts a lot of pressure on the team to actually deliver the product on time <laughs> whereas if you don't if you don't have real customers i think that uh actually you subconsciously uh don't work as hard
1: yeah i think that's a good point point. and when we come back from this commercial break we're going to pick up on this discussion with Iotera and learn more about kind of the lessons they've learned as they went through their Kickstarter program and how they get, went from their idea to actually take that to a finished product and put that into the marketplace, which is a critical phase and, and experience that we can all learn from. So stay tuned. We're going to be right back after this commercial break. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Kill Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network.
3: This Talk Radio.
0: This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage where you learn to create your next game-changing Killer Innovation.
1: Welcome back. This week we're talking about Internet of Things and really how is that turning into being a real hot space for innovation. I'm Phil McKinney and you're listening to Killer Innovations. Today we have Ben Wild, CEO for IOTERRA. And Ben and I were talking in the first segment about kind of just a little bit of background on IOTERRA. We just wrapped up a discussion on the Kickstarter uh, program and about the challenges of being in the hardware space and that we were lamenting or. Uh, crying on each other's shoulders on the challenges of uh, being in the hardware biz. But then given your experience with taking, you know, this idea, and now you're actually starting to ship your, your Kickstarter, uh, products out to your, to your supporters, what are some of the lessons learned through that whole process from where you started to where you are today? What, what would be some of the things you've learned and some of the challenges you had to overcome?
2: yeah good question so i think uh initially like uh in terms of like preparation for the kickstarter campaign i think it takes a lot of time to prepare and i think you need like about you know one to two months of preparation um really getting some like publicity some of the media covering uh your campaign is really important um i think the kickstarter backers they you know there's been a lot of projects that have failed and um there's been some fraud on kickstarter so I think they want to, to trust you, so I think having some media coverage um, helps, and um, you know, some prototypes that actually work before you do the Kickstarter campaign is also important. So,
1: did you uh, have, did you actually have something up and working before you went into the Kickstarter? And then, actually, have yeah. the hardware?
2: we had a working prototypes that demonstrated uh, the range that we were achieving with the home bases and the iotas, and uh, yeah, so the iotas we were definitely in the prototype stage at that at that point.
1: Well, that's a good point, though, but because ha- a lot of the guys in Kickstarter are out there promoting the Kickstarter, and they have not built anything. It's a napkin idea, and no. they're making all these kinds of wild promises. And I look at these things, and I go, okay, just by the way your Kickstarter program is set up, I can tell you've never built hardware before. So
2: <laughs> Definitely, definitely.
1: So what are some of the other challenges you ran into?
2: Uh, yeah, so after a Kickstarter campaign, you know, once, you know, before Kickstarter, we never really built more than 20 or 30, you know, prototypes. And then after Kickstarter, now we're basically faced with the challenge of building a couple thousands of thousands of, of hardware devices. Um, and I think that is a big, a big step up. And we've had some manufacturing difficulties. Uh, the first time we tried to set up the manufacturing line, uh, we were at about 50% yield on the product, which just was not going to cut it and uh you know every time there's a mistake like that on the manufacturing line it it can delay things by another month or two so i think we definitely were a bit optimistic initially in terms of how long it's going to take us to to work through all these issues um and it took us i would say six more months than what we expected to eventually get the yield up to around 98 percent at at what you know that's where we're at right now
1: yeah yeah the 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 yield problem on a first ramp on production is always Heartbreaking and challenging, and uh, uh, but it's also, you know, the next time around you'll know what to look for, which you've, which can have a yield impact on it. And that, that that in that case, that just comes from experience. It's not something you could even read in a book, because it's you the yield problem in hardware manufacturing is unique to the technology that's being deployed.
2: Definitely, and I think another thing is to remember to always like think about like the test procedure ahead of time. And you know, build up that uh, testing fixture, whatever you're doing to test your units right off the manufacturing line, and add as many hooks as possible to get as much data as possible out of your out of your uh, units coming out off the line. So, any other challenges you you ran across
1: during the whole process of going from idea and putting that into the marketplace?
2: I think um, during the campaign, you know, I think as a startup back then when we did the campaign, we had like three full time employees, uh, all engineers. Um, And we had to do marketing all of a sudden, you know, and uh, so we tried to do Facebook ads and uh, we just really struggled with that. Um, You know, spending thousands of dollars with no return, but eventually we kind of learned how to like um, properly do Facebook ads and eventually getting the customer acquisition cost down to a reasonable level. Uh, So I think it's just doing a startup, you have to to do more than just engineering. Uh, You actually do like the marketing as well, which can be challenging. So how big is your organization today? Today we have six full-time employees.
1: And how long from the, over what time frame? So how long ago did you start to where you are today?
2: Yeah, we started the company about, uh, I would say five years ago. And that was was just me by myself. I brought in my co-founder, Rob, about four years ago. And then it was me and my co-founder for a long time because we couldn't, it took us a while to raise money. So we were like very like bootstrapped. We took no salary at all for a few years. Uh, until about two and a half years ago when we raised our first um, round of financing.
1: Okay, well, you guys definitely get the gold star for perseverance.
2: Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, definitely, you know, it's, it's perseverance and you, can, you can't do it unless you really enjoy what you're working on. And for us, it was kind of like a hobby, you know, it was really just lots of fun for us to build this.
1: Well, it's also, you know, it, it's a sign of passion, right? I always talk mm-hmm. about the fact that, you know, I can go out and recruit people with technical skills. The one thing you cannot recruit for is passion. Mm-hmm. And passion in in a startup world is absolutely so critical. People just believe in it. They love what they do. You know, it's like the old saying, right? Find something that you would do for nothing and it'll never be a day. You'll never work a day in your life, right? And right. You just have to later on find a way to get paid for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, 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 you know, that, it sounds like that's what you guys had. And so um if you had to pick maybe one or maybe two items you would do differently again, what would those what would those be? You talked a little bit about you know test harnesses. you talked a little bit about you know focusing on getting that yield piece up talked about the advertising, the marketing piece maybe maybe not hiring somebody but getting support and help in that area, given uh, you know the entire hiring staff at that point we're all we're all engineers. Is there something else you would you could think of that would be kind of a real big like Here's the yellow flag, make sure you do this.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one thing that I can think of is that uh, whenever we're developing products, um, you know, we have a gut feel for what the customer wants. Uh, but in reality, the customer actually might want something completely different than what you think they want. So really spend a lot of time uh, ahead of time interviewing as many of your potential customers as possible uh, to really, uh, and that can help you kind of refine your product early on. And it just takes so much more effort to actually change your product features later rather than earlier. So that's kind of one, one piece of advice I would give. Yeah,
1: that's actually a good one, right? And it's also, as you, when you talk about the fact that you guys have been doing this for five years, you know, even the, even the IoT space has changed pretty radically just in the last two years, much less over the entire five years. Uh, and so the ability to stay close to your customer and understand, you know, what are those changes that they're going through or what the marketplace is going through, right? You know, I'm not a big fan of the term IoT, anyways, because I think it's kind of a um, it comes across as too much of a buzzword rather mm-hmm. than really describing what the capabilities are uh, of these kinds of technologies. But it's the label that's gotten tagged to it in the marketplace, so we have to deal with it in that context. So we're gonna get ready to take a, another commercial break here. But when we come back, uh, I'm Ben. I'm gonna ask you. If, to, to give us a little bit of your insight on where the, the, this whole industry segment is going. You know, where is IoT going? Where do you think there are still potentially some opportunities? Because you know, the audience here, we're all innovators. We're trying to figure out what that potential next opportunity is. So when we come back, I've asked Ben, he's gonna give us a little bit of his expertise and insight given he's living in the IoT world. So stay right where you're at. We'll be right back after getting a few bills paid. You're listening to Kill Innovations. I'm Phil McKinney, and we're on the BizTalk Radio Network.
3: BizTalk Radio.
0: is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation.
1: In this week's show, we're talking about the Internet of Things and how it's really become a a hotspot for those of us in the innovation game to take a look at. This week, we have the CEO for IOTERA, Ben Wild, joining us. IOTERA Started off as a uh, company looking at this whole Internet of Things space, uh, raised some money, and then went off and did a Kickstarter to create basically their solution, which is the series of very, very small GPS tags that can work over very long distances in a network that they are, in effect, building by actually getting uh, the consumers to buy their platforms and deploy, which helps extend that coverage. So Ben's had that experience of going from... Him by himself, starting it off on his own, to getting his co-founders in place, to raising his money, to doing his Kickstarter, and is now shipping his product. So, you uh, know, so Ben, you've definitely learned your your stripes and your scars in the process of having gone through that experience. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you though was, you know, given the, the all the excitement around the IoT space, can you give maybe just a couple of minutes on what you think? where does IoT go from here? We've seen it kind of lots of little bitty devices, but where where do you see the future for IoT going from the standpoint of as an industry?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, the the IoT space is such a huge space. There's so many things going on. Um, You know, I think that IoT is more than just the sensors or the connectivity. Uh, It's also about like, you know, what do you do with that data? So I think um, there's going to be a lot of innovation on um, Collecting mil- the data from millions of sensors and doing something valuable uh, both on the enterprise side on the and on the consumer side I think on the enterprise side you're seeing a lot of companies like GE and IBM Trying to improve business efficiency with a uh, d- data collective collected from different machines um, You know, I think um, that there's going to be a lot of innovation on the artificial intelligence that um, processes all that data. I think in the future there's also going to be like a robotics revolution, and I think there's a tie-in between robotics and IoT. So, for instance, a smart city uh, might want to put sensors in public trash cans to improve the efficiency of when when to uh, collect trash. You know, in the thousands of public trash cans. Uh, but a next step could be that you can have robotics uh, robots actually getting that data from the IoT sensors and emptying the trash cans for the cities. Uh, so I think there's gonna be a lot of opportunities for integration of robotics with IoT.
1: Uh, before the city gets the robot to clean the trash out, I need one here at my house, so I don't have to <laughs> haul it out for my wife uh, <laughs> every day. Um, but in this case though, one of the challenges though, at least from my perspective, when I look at the IoT space though, is all of the, the proprietary nature of the solutions right? Everybody's off building their own thing, right? we've You've got the, you know, the all-scene consortium guys, which is Qualcomm, you got Intel, and you got the Google guys. But the problem is, is they're all off doing their kind of their own thing. Do you think that there's got to be some kind of resolution to that before IoT can really have a big play? Or do you think that that's, that's always going to be there? Or, because I just see that's that as a, as a problem for for uh, you know, for, for what I would say, oh, what with the, with the true f- full potential of IoT could be.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, like really Wi-Fi took off because it was like one great standard. And I think for IoT, there is definitely a lot of different competing technologies, both for the indoor space, as well as for the outdoor space that we compete in. Um, so we have a lot of com- competitors also building out IoT networks with their own proprietary technologies. Um, I think that we will converge to uh, a very, you know, fewer kind of standard technologies in the future, but at this point, uh, it's kind of very early on, and there's going to be a shakeout that's going to happen uh, to determine who's the best technology uh, that is worthwhile to standardize. And I think you have to first get that traction before you can start talking about standardization. So yeah. I think in the next few years, that'll happen.
1: Yeah, and again, I mean, I've had, you know, I've been involved in some of the conversations with the executives around across. It's a handful of these companies and you know i think you know they they all started off at about the same time i don't think anybody's intentionally trying to do proprietary you know the semiconductor guys want to sell their chips um but in reality for the fact that they there was a lack of a standard they just went off and created their own and now we've got all these you know factions that have kind of broken out but at least in my conversations with a lot of them they're like hey we'd be more than willing to rationalize. Things like APIs to make it easier for third parties to use our sensors, um, and get away from the proprietary solutions, because I mean, it's just proven, you know, generation over generation, that by getting to some rationalization of the APIs, so that you can bring a third-party ecosystem into play, just helps everybody. You know, it's an all boats rise mm-hmm. problem um, with these kinds of technologies when you're trying to drive this fast of an innovation rate into something as new as Mm -hmm. uh, the iot space
2: yeah definitely you know and we looked at like zigbee technology early on and we just couldn't never find a technology that fit uh what we were trying to solve and that's why we were forced to go with a proprietary solution
1: right because you've always got the trade-off problem right you know zigbee's great but um you know some people would argue though that the spec for Zigbee is a little too loose. And therefore, you know, it's hard for from a reliability standpoint, a consistency standpoint, you know, type of a thing. Albeit uh, a longtime listener of this show, John Osborne is uh, or was, I don't know if he still is. He's the chair of the Zigbee standards body and he's head of innovation at at, or was head of innovation at Kroger Foods where they deployed Zigbee in the store. So John may call me up or he's probably going to send me an email after he hears the show arguing uh, against Zigbee. But it does tell you. It does get into the point, though. In some cases, you do have to create some level of proprietary nature, or you get the trade-offs. Like you said in the first segment, you know, you could have gone with Wi-Fi or using, you know, 4G wireless, but then you trade off battery, right? So when you're trying mm-hmm. to sub-optimize an innovation, you you do run into these trade-off problems versus saying, you know, we're not going to sub-optimize. We're going to take what we can, but we're going to create something that's, you know, one plus one equals three and not get stuck in, uh, in uh, compromising the product or compromising the experience or compromising the value uh, to the customer.
2: Definitely, definitely makes sense. Mm-hmm.
1: And so in this case for, for you, you've got, you got your basic GPS sensors, you know, up now. And we talked earlier about that you said, yeah, you were looking to open up your network as you get it deployed to make it third, you know, make third parties available to use it. What technology would a third party have to have to take advantage of uh, the network that you're building out?
2: Yeah, so, you know, if we decide to open up a network, uh, we do kind of see um, the, the, the networking side of things kind of becoming pretty commoditized just like so many players building up wireless networks for the Internet of Things, people talking about you know, $1 per year service fees for connecting a device to the internet. Uh, that means you need to connect a lot of devices to make any money. Uh, but you know, if we choose to, to open up our network, then it would be you know, we, uh, a big part of our pl- uh, platform is the cloud services. So the data that goes into our cloud, we would offer a standard API interface to get the data out of our cloud. Uh, on the hardware side, in theory, we could build like a little SIM card that could plug into your sensor. And then you would, we would have a very simple to use hardware API to get the data uh, over our network without really needing to know uh, the details of how our protocol actually works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and in this case, you've built the, the this GPS sensor, which you said was the smallest GPS sensor that's out there today. And therefore though, and in, in that you had, you know, three to four months. Um, but your technology is not tied specifically to the GPS sensor. It could be used for a lot of other things too, correct?
2: Exactly. You know, our technology is more on the networking side, the, the, the wireless protocol that enables the very uh, long, low, long battery life um, and long range.
1: Great. So, hey, as we wrap up here, um, where can people find out more about your product and where can they buy it?
2: Yeah, so our website is www.iotracker.com, I-O-T-A-T-R-A-C-K-E-R.com. Um, you know, for, for your listeners, uh, feel free to use uh, discount code innovation uh, to get $10 off. Uh, we would love to have That's you guys great. test it out.
1: Great. We'll have all this in the show notes. So you can hop over to killinnovations.com and we'll have all the links to IOTERA, to the site and with the uh, the discount code. So, hey, Ben, really appreciate you coming out and spending uh, this time with us uh, today from the standpoint of uh, sharing more about what you've been doing. It's uh, it's sounds exciting i think you guys are solving uh that key problem in the whole area of the uh of of that core network when we come back from this commercial break we're going to have the killer question of the week Uh, we're going to take a look at how do you go and talk to and find those new customers for a new innovation that you're working on if you want to get connected with killer innovations you can just text the word innovate to 33444 if you're outside the united states visit slash innovate that will get you subscribed to the newsletter. I'll also send you a free 2-hour audio course to help kind of build up that basic skill set for how to innovate. So stay tuned, we'll be right back after this commercial break. We'll talk about the killer question. I'm Phil McKinney. You're listening to Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network.
3: BizTalk Radio.
0: This is killer innovations a show about ideas creativity and how you can innovate welcome to the innovators garage where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation
1: each week here on the killer innovations we take a look at questions that will cause you to take and look at your problems and opportunities in a unique and different way it's my way of challenging your creative muscle to think differently so get ready This week's killer question is what sales approaches need to be developed to reach new customers? What sales approaches need to be developed to reach new customers? We tend to get caught in this rut of just basically once we've got a process in place of how we manage sales and how we manage the sales funnel, or if you're in the e-commerce world, how you manage your funnel from the standpoint of things like your CRM and automated sales response and your landing pages, or how do you assign quota to your sales guys that are out there physically, you know, know, banging doors. So this week, the challenge is, is not to get stuck in that rut, right? And also the question is, is what constitutes really a new customer? It may not always be something that you've got with a whole new product. It could be your customers changing You've got a customer today, but they're changing over time. Customers don't stay the same. So lately, I've been hearing a lot about impending retirement surge. Basically, the baby boomer. But I'm at the end of the baby boomers. So I'm a boomer, finally leaving the workplace, and how it's going to change the tech industry. Now, quite honestly, I'm not looking to, to change or leave the uh, the workplace. Right? My wife says I'll be uh, pushing up daisies before I'll uh, before I'll hang up my shingle. Uh, but the combined worth of this market segment of the boomers is $2 trillion. Now that's a lot of disposable income and it's a lot of freed up time for those that are retired from, you know, for them to really find new products, new hobbies, new life goals. As I mentioned the baby boomers because they represent a truth about general customer bases, they're always in flux. You know, today I'm, I'm a grandfather sometime in the future, I may be retired. But we're always in flux and you need to be constantly be thinking about how you can modify your sales approach to appeal to your customer as they change through their own life cycles. So when you're looking for ways to reach out to new customers, keep in mind that you need to think of them in new ways to reach existing customers as well. An existing customer base still has the potential to change so radically that it can essentially become a new customer for you as their passions and their needs changes. As you're raising your kids, your kids go to college, you're an empty nester, you're later in life, you're retired, etc. Now, I've been very interested in seeing how the healthcare industry responds to this evolution of its existing customers and the influx as people get older, these aging patients dealing with chronic diseases associated with age and poor lifestyle choices. A number of companies have been, come interested in using technology to support this healthcare. By basically reversing the idea of a patient traveling to see a specialist at a specialist office. Now these companies are in trials around the broad concept of remote telemedicine or what some people would say telemedicine. A nurse examines a patient while a specialist perhaps in another city state or even country observes and directs via the video conference. The nurse and the equipment can be stationed either in a local doctor's office or potentially in a mobile clinic This is a huge boon for a massive section of the American population. Those people who live hundreds or thousands of miles away from specialists, but who require frequent appointments and checkups. Now, remote medicine companies have kind of upended this traditional experience of how a patient and a specialist meet and interact. By doing so, they've created a system that has the potential to not only vastly reduce the associated healthcare costs, but also allow a whole new customer group to utilize their service. Now, this also has some challenges. Here in the United States, certain laws do not allow doctors who are licensed in, let's say, one state to provide telemedicine in a different state because they're not licensed in that other state. And so therefore, um, technology is out there way ahead of the government, the politicians and all the regulatory challenges. So when you think, though, about your customer and how your customer changes, here's your sparking points. Here's the questions to think about. How are you currently reaching out to new customers? To what extent do your sales approaches determine who your customers are? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Do you pre-categorize? Do you lump them? Do you label them? Be careful. What would happen if you applied a sales approach that is radically different from the one you currently focus on? Try something new. Do something different. So get your Idea Notebook out, let's exercise that creative muscle, set aside 10 to 15 minutes each day. Now that's not a whole lot of time and in fact coming up here probably sometime in February I'm going to run a little, I'm going to create a little video to show you how I do this every day. How I put ideas into my Idea Notebook each and every day. Uh, You have heard me talk about it for quite a while on the show here number of you have emailed me on it. I'm going to put, create a video. I'll post it. I'll try to get it done here sometime in, in February so that you can actually see how I do it. But just set aside 10, 15 minutes, even if it's a blank sheet of paper, back of a napkin, but just crank out as many ideas as you can based on this question applied to your business or opportunity. Now, some of you asked, where do these questions come from? This and all of the killer questions that we've shared on this show, particularly since July of last year, come from the book Beyond the Obvious, which is my book, where I share how to use questions to find, rank, and execute on unique, beyond the obvious ideas. And the book is available in hardcover, audio digital, and you can also get it in English and Japanese and Chinese and Portuguese and I, Koreans out now too. Then you can purchase the book at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, physical bookstores, or you can buy it online. You can also purchase it from our store, Innovation.tools. And that's a new store that we've set up. We're going to start collecting up the best books, best tools, best, best courses um, for people who want to be really top notch innovators. Now, the one thing I wanted to point out, though, in this case, it comes across like I'm promoting and pushing the book. Now, 100% of my author royalties and 100% of the profits from the store go to one of two charities that we support. Pioneer.education, which is building a prototype school in Rwanda to teach graduates how to be entrepreneurs and then hackingautism.org, where we fund, create and support opportunities to improve personal professional lives for people in the autism spectrum. So this is not a moneymaker, but I want to get these tools into your hands to help you go off and create that next great innovation. So go over, check out killinnovations.com. You can see the show notes. Also, check out BizTalk Radio. Radio. You can check out and see where all of the, uh, the great shows are at. We'll be back with you um, next week. In the meantime, if you've got somebody who you think has got a great innovation story, drop me a note at phil at Today's show was engineered by Jeremiah. He's done a great job keeping me on track. I'm Phil McKinney. Don't let those innovation critics get you down. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.
3: opinions you hear on BizTalk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, BizTalk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on BizTalk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about BizTalk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. BizTalk Radio.